Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Phil and I are so glad you are starting your morning with us. Good morning. Happy Monday. Good to be back. It's good we to be back. You. It's very good to be back. A lot of news. Yeah, too. we have a lot of news to get to and some tragic news out of Hawaii. So let's get started with five things to know this Monday, August 14th, breaking overnight, 96. That is the death count so far from the Hawaii wildfires. And only 3% of the disaster area has been searched. The governor calling it a fire hurricane. It spread faster than a mile a minute, and now a new lawsuit against the state's main electric provider. And just hours from now, the Fulton County District Attorney is expected to begin presenting her case to a grand jury in the Georgia election subversion case. This means a potential fourth indictment looms over former President Donald Trump, as CNN learns exclusively about key evidence obtained by prosecutors. And a home explodes outside of Pittsburgh, killing five gas systems. We're operating, quote, as designed, according to officials who say it could take months or years to figure out exactly what happened. Also this, the raid of a newspaper headquarters in Kansas is raising serious concerns over First Amendment rights. Police seizing everything from computers to servers to cell phones of reporters and editors. And the story Poppy cares about so much. <laughs> Not the at all. The cage fight called off. Mark Zuckerberg says, quote, it's time to move on from the proposed matchup with fellow billionaire Elon Musk. CNN This Morning starts right now. It has been just devastating to watch what is happening in Hawaii as the, the death count goes up and up. Yeah, the pictures are extraordinary. They're heartbreaking, uh, almost tough to put into context, mm-hmm. given just how devastating and it's And the been. lack of warning that we're learning yeah. about. We're going to get into all of it, but here's what we know. Breaking overnight, 96 people are confirmed dead in Hawaii. Wildfires with only 3% of the disaster areas searched so far. Just think about that. They have so much more to search. You're looking at video of what is left behind this morning. Hawaii's governor says FEMA crews are discovering other tragedies in an ongoing fashion. He says extra search and rescue crews are now on the way, along with 20 cadaver dogs. Authorities are asking family members to provide DNA to try to help identify people who died. And there are new questions about how this actually happened and the response to it. The power company now facing a lawsuit for not cutting electricity when forecasters warned about powerful wind gusts. The New York Times reporting that firefighters had to cope with hydrants that were running dry. An official says backup generators maintained the supply, but water started spewing out of melting pipes, leading to low pressure. Here's the governor. I've authorized a comprehensive review of what happened in the early hours of the fire and the hours thereafter. We will build back together. We will find out what we could have done uh, to prevent such loss of life to the best of our ability. As of now, the best information we have is that In those hours when the fire sparked, there were several fires across Maui. One fire was deemed to be out. It must not have been completely extinguished because when the winds rose up, winds gusting as high as 81 miles per hour, fire spread rapidly. We believe between 60 miles per hour and 81 miles per hour, 
across that part of the island. And that meant that fire traveled one mile every minute, resulting in this tragedy. With those kind of winds and a thousand degree temperatures, ultimately all the pictures that you will see will be easy to understand because that level of destruction in a fire hurricane, something new to us in this age of global warming was the ultimate reason that so many people perished. You heard the governor there of Hawaii just calling it a fire hurricane, something new to them, he said, pointing really at, at climate change and global warming. And you also heard him say that these flames spread one mile per minute. That is faster than anyone can run. It's as fast as you can drive on the freeway. Here's a sense of what that was like. Oh, MG, wrong turn, wrong turn. Oh, no, 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 not like this. Not like this. Not like this. No, God, the car. Help us. Send your angels. Yeah. Guys, guys, start praying. Lord, oh no, oh no, oh no. No, we gotta get out or something. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> the car, the car. They did get out. Those people are safe. They ended up taking shelter on the rocks. Other survivors now struggling with what to do next as so many line up to try to get back into Lahaina. Here is our Mike Valerio. Poppy and Phil, good morning. Even at this early hour of the day, we're standing here at the Waihe'e Juncture. This is the checkpoint to get into the Lahaina Disaster Zone. No other way in but right here. And whenever you are standing here talking to people, families, people who have lived here for decades, it's an extremely emotional juncture for anybody who crosses through here. A few hours ago, we met a woman named Susan, and she told us just what it is like to experience the dramatic change from this idyllic landscape to the moonscape of ashen streets, debris, and explain to us in quite moving terms everything that she has seen. Listen to what she told us. When I drove through on Friday, I had no clue what I was going through. I got so, um, everything's gone. I lost friends in there, you know, they were going back to get their animals, you know, and she died. So, I mean, you know, it's really sad because people come over here. You know, I heard there was a snorkeling boat looking at Lahaina Town. Give them respect, you know, it's so bad. This is, you know, people died here. You know, people, I mean, it's not just a vacation. It's not just a place for vacation. We live here. Now, Poppy and Phil, to give you an idea of the contrast that we're seeing earlier this weekend on Saturday, one of the routes into the disaster zone opened up and it was organized chaos, mostly chaos, I would say. It was about a mile long line to get in, profound frustration, a lack of communication perceived between law enforcement and people who are just struggling to see if their home survived. Now there's a better system. This is the only way in, a counterclockwise direction on a map that we've made showing you the only way into the disaster zone, taking you about an hour from this position that we're in about a thousand feet above the Pacific Ocean into uh, the area near Lahaina. So people again trying to see what has survived as we start a new week here, an uncertain week in the heart of Maui. Poppy and Phil, back to you. Mike Valeria, thank you for the reporting. We're going to continue to follow the fires and the aftermath all morning here. Yeah. Well, also this morning, we're following a fourth possible indictment 
that is looming over former President Donald Trump as the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, prepares to present her case to a grand jury. Now, as soon as today, Bonnie Willis is expected to start presenting evidence in her sprawling investigation of the alleged scheme to overturn President Joe Biden's 2020 election victory in the state of Georgia. So here is CNN's exclusive reporting. The prosecutors have text messages and emails that show Trump lawyers were behind the breaching the breach of a voting system in Georgia over the weekend. Trump continued to insist he did nothing wrong. Is there any chance you take a plea deal in Georgia? We did nothing wrong. We don't ever take a plea deal. Yes, sir. We don't take plea deals. It's a wise guy question. Are you just a wise guy? We don't take plea deals because I did nothing wrong. It's called election interference. You know what that is? Our Sarah Mori broke that reporting with our colleague Zach Cohen. She joins us live outside of the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta. It it was explosive to see that direct link in, you know, what your sources are telling you guys, writing. Yeah, that's right, Poppy. I mean, look, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her team have spent more than two and a half years investigating this case. As soon as today, they could go before this grand jury and seek charges against more than a dozen individuals. And this is coming, as you point out, as we are learning about new evidence prosecutors have obtained throughout the course of this long-running investigation. Security precautions already underway at the courthouse in Atlanta as Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to begin her grand jury presentation this week on former President Donald Trump and his allies' alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. It's the clearest sign she intends to seek charges this week as the widespread investigation into election interference comes to a head. Jeff Duncan, Georgia's former lieutenant governor and CNN contributor, confirming he's been summoned to appear before the grand jury. I did just receive notification to appear on Tuesday morning. I'll certainly answer whatever questions put in front of me. Independent journalist George Cheedy posted on social media he's also been called to testify Tuesday. Cheedy said he walked in on a group of shadow electors gathered to sign an illegitimate certification for then-President Trump in December 2020. They all but frog-marched me out of the room, and then they posted somebody out front to make sure nobody else went in. In addition to putting forward fake electors and the infamous phone call from President Trump to Georgia's Secretary of State... I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes... The breach of voting systems in rural Republican Coffee County is part of the probe. Sources tell CNN investigators have long suspected the breach was a top-down effort by Trump's team, rather than an organic effort by Trump backers. And sources say they have text messages and emails that directly connect members of Trump's legal team to that breach. Did you have any sense that this was sort of tied to other operatives in the Trump campaign, that it was anything beyond sort of lower-level people in Coffee County? Not initially, but uh, there were allegations, and, and then as you dig down deep, more is revealed, and then you realize that that wasn't truthful. Surveillance video previously obtained by CNN shows a local election official escorting a team of pro-Trump operatives in to examine the machines on January 7, 2021. The group included Scott Hall, an Atlanta bail bondsman and Fulton County Republican poll watcher. I'm the guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County to have them 
inspect all of those computers. They scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives, and scanned every single ballot. According to text messages obtained by CNN, former county elections official Misty Hampton authored a, quote, written invitation six days prior to examine machines. That invitation shared with attorneys working with Trump and others, hunting for election fraud on behalf of Trump's then lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Just landed back in D.C. with the mayor, huge things starting to come together. An employee for the firm hired to access voting machines wrote in one text in an apparent reference to former New York Mayor Giuliani. We were just granted access by written invitation to Coffee County Systems. Yay, another message reads. Now, when I talked to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, he insisted Giuliani had nothing to do with the Coffee County breach, and then in more colorful fashion, pointed the finger at Sidney Powell, another member of Trump's post-election legal team, and said you can't hold Giuliani accountable for what Sidney Powell was up to. Poppy, Phil. Right, great reporting. Sarah Murray for us live in Atlanta. Thank you. Donald Trump and other Republican presidential candidates squaring off over the weekend at the Iowa State Fair. The former president tried to upstage and steal the spotlight from his top rival, Ron DeSantis. The Florida governor faced hecklers on the ground and in the air. You've got to be willing to stand for what's right, even when it's not popular. And even when you're hey, you know what? Hey, you know what? We're in Iowa. And in Iowa, we're Iowa nice. So let's give everybody the opportunity to hear our candidates. So that's a plane circling above. It says, with, the, with one of those banners, it says, be likable, Ron. Let's bring in CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zelny. That's not very uh, Iowa nice. Jeff. Well, we should point out that those were liberal uh, protesters and Fair. hecklers there. So perhaps a sign of strength as well. But look, it was a weekend of risk and opportunity as this big field of Republican candidates descended on Iowa. Of course, former President Donald Trump seized many of the headlines, but his rivals spent far more time talking to the actual voters who were going to open this campaign in just five months. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his wife Casey riding bumper cars with their kids. A weekend filled with the traditions that make the Iowa State Fair a quintessential stop on the presidential campaign trail. DeSantis encountered protests from some progressives and support from many conservatives as he walked through the fairgrounds, which he described as a sign of strength. I think when the left comes out, that's a sign of strength because, like, they know that uh, we will beat Biden and they know we will be able to turn this country around and they do not want that. Former President Donald Trump took the spotlight when he arrived, bypassing traditional fair events but greeting admirers. He trolled his leading rival by traveling with Florida members of Congress who have endorsed him over their state's governor. And with the looming fourth indictment expected in the coming days, he pledged to remain the front runner in the race. We have not taken any chances. We're way up in the polls in Iowa and all over the country. We're up by over 50 points. That's a lot, but we don't want to take any chances. We'll be back. We love you very much. Some Republicans still backing Trump are open to considering other candidates 
or at least hearing them out. Right now, as long as Trump can run, I'm, I'm for him. You know, I'm, my mind is open, of course. You got, you know, we got to do something different. Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds says she believes the primary race is far from settled. It's so early. People are paying so much attention to the national polls, and I can tell you it's just not reflective of kind of what I'm hearing from Iowans as I'm traveling around. There's always surprises. It's just that's part of the process. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Republican hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy worked the crowd courting younger voters with a message of change while taking a subtle jab at President Biden. I think that it takes a person of a different generation to reach the next generation. Young people have lost their sense of national pride. I don't think an octogenarian can re-inspire and reignite pride in the next generation. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley logged hours at the fair, flipping burgers and playing games after a fairside chat with Governor Reynolds. She urged Republicans to turn the page. It is time that we leave the negativity behind, the drama behind. And if you look at the uh, shirt that Nikki Haley was wearing there, it perhaps describes her message that says, underestimate me, that'll be fun. So clearly, when we talked to a lot of Iowa voters over the last several days and months, uh, many of them have more open minds. There's no doubt that uh, the former president has his core supporters. But it is always surprising to know that many people are just beginning to look at this race. Of course, next week, the first presidential debate happens on the Republican side. That, of course, could reshape things as well. But this campaign, five months from tomorrow, is when it opens in Iowa. You know, Jeff is a Des Moines County Register alum and Nebraska's <laughs> One of the finest, best newspapers Nebraska's in the finest, Jeff Zeleny. This is what, Jeff, like your 40th uh, state fair that you've been to <laughs> at this point? I mean, I won as a young child, Phil, so yes. No, uh, not quite 40th, but a lot. And we've seen a lot of candidates. And listen, a lot of open minds, a lot of food, a great weekend for all. We know you enjoyed the reporting as much as you enjoyed the food at the fair. That I was saying last week is second only to the Minnesota State Fair, where my kids cannot wait to have a pickle on a stick there. Tell us. Uh, those are true. fighting words for Zelani, <laughs> but we'll take it. Thank Thanks, you, buddy. Jeff. Thanks, guys. Well, coming up, as the death toll mounts, we're going to speak to the Biden administration about its latest efforts to help survivors of the catastrophic wildfires that have killed at least 96 people in Maui. And an investigation is underway into why a house in Pennsylvania exploded, killing five people, including a child. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New overnight, the Maui wildfires are now blamed for 96 deaths, and that number is expected to rise. And a lawsuit has been filed against Hawaii's main electric provider, claiming that electrified power lines blown over by high winds caused by Hurricane Dora, quote, foreseeably ignited the fast-moving, deadly, and destructive Lahaina fire. The new lawsuit does not state exactly how the power lines allegedly caused the wildfire. An official cause of the wildfire has not yet been determined. The blaze is America's deadliest fire in more than a century, with more than 2,000 structures damaged or destroyed. Joining us now, Associate Administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration in the Office of Disaster Recovery and Resilience, Francisco Sanchez. Uh, sir, thank you so much for taking the time. You've been on the ground Tell us what, we've seen the pictures. What, yeah. what have you seen on the ground uh, with the destruction? 
Uh, good morning. We, we can't begin to uh, understand the, the grief and the loss that these communities are going through. What we saw on the ground is nothing short of catastrophic uh, or heartbreaking. Uh, the president signed a major disaster declaration, and he was very clear. Uh, bring every federal resource that we have, have available uh, to help these communities recover. So the people of Maui, the people of Hawaii need to know they're not at this alone. Uh, and the entire federal family is, is committed to helping them recover. As a matter of fact, this weekend, being on the ground, uh, the president sent a member of his cabinet, uh, the Small Business Administration and Administrator Isabella Casillas Guzman, uh, joined uh, the, the head of FEMA uh, to get a sense on the ground, uh, a survey uh, in person of what the challenges this community would face. And what was very clear is that this is going to be a long-term recovery. It's going to require a whole-of-government approach, a whole-of-community approach uh, to make sure we get this community uh, back on its feet. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And can you explain what that means? Because I think what's so striking to us is to see an entire business district decimated, right? Often when we talk about these disasters, it is several. It's not the entire area. And that's what happened in Lahaina. What can these business owners count on from the federal government? What does whole of government approach mean to them? Do they get made whole? Um, we walked through that district, and this was not only an entire district. This was a very historic uh, yeah. part of the community that has a lot of cultural value. And so uh, beyond just the businesses, just the, the, the impact that, that's reverberating across the state. Uh, for us, it means, you know, people think about small business and you think about uh, the role SBA plays day in and day out building businesses across this country. We are uniquely positioned. Uh, uh, to help homeowners, businesses, renters, and private nonprofits. So a business owner that was impacted uh, as an individual, uh, we can help them. Uh, for business owners, we saw businesses of every size just burned to the ground. Businesses that are your traditional storefronts where you walk in, have a meal, or, or buy something local. Uh, to those uh, entrepreneurs that may simply run a table at a fair, uh, selling some of the things that are made in that community. So this town is so deeply uh, uh, dependent on, on tourism. Uh, and we're coming up on, on one of the busiest uh, times of year for them. And so for us, focus on helping them with the capital they need uh, to, to start back up uh, and to make sure they're resilient. And so uh, this is going to be an effort that we're going to work with very closely with FEMA, uh, local state officials. We did meet with local chambers of commerce, uh, economic groups. We visited some business owners that were impacted. And so uh, the challenge is real, but SBA is going to bring every possible resource, uh, not just our disaster programs, but everything we do day in and day out, uh, bring to the table to help these communities get back on its feet. You know, to that point, I think almost 80% of the income generated on Maui comes from tourism. We've heard from local residents saying that they don't want to see tourists at this moment in time, given the scale of the disaster. There's a difficult balancing act here, and I know you guys end up kind of in the middle of it to some degree. I guess my biggest question is, how fast can these businesses, if tourists are not coming, how fast can they expect the federal government and the support provided by the SBA to reach them? What, what is the, the length of time this is going to take? Well, in terms of the resources that are available now, uh, the president signed the declaration before the fires were even completely out. Uh, our first SBA team members were on the ground that same day, along with FEMA. So some of these business owners are, are still in shelters. This, this community was devastated, and so there's not a lot of structures around. Some parts of the island are obviously still operating. These parts of the community, the governor was clear when we met with him. Uh, parts of Maui are open. If this community particularly is impacted and people ought to respect uh, that space, but uh, while those folks are still uh, uh, getting to some safety and some stability, uh, we are in the shelters with FEMA providing those resources. Uh, we are there uh, ready now. Uh, some people, as you mentioned, simply aren't ready yet, but when they are, we'll be here to help.
And before I let you go, do you believe there have been some concerns on the ground uh, justified, given what they've been through, from residents saying that the response from federal, state, and local has simply not been adequate up to that, this point? On the federal side, do you disagree with that assessment? I'll tell you what I saw on the ground. I, there were first responders still doing life-saving work. Uh, and so from our part, we're focused on uh, our role and mission uh, from the Small Business Administration on the recovery piece, working with FEMA. We're on the ground now. Uh, we're working in those shelters now. Uh, and, and we're committed to be here. We were here from day one and we'll be here as long as it takes. Uh, and we'll be as flexible as we can be to make sure they have those resources across, across SBA and all our federal partners when it gets uh, to the recovery piece. All right, Francisco Sanchez from Small Business Administration. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We do have new developments in the Hunter Biden case after his lawyers say federal prosecutors pulled back on an agreed upon plea deal that would have resolved the charges against him. Is this thing going to go to trial? All right, new overnight, Hunter Biden's lawyers are arguing a deal they made with prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge against him is still, quote, valid and binding. That part of it, at least. This comes in a new court filing just days after prosecutors said plea deal talks with the president's son had fallen apart. This move comes as Attorney General Merrick Garland elevated U.S. Attorney David Weiss to special counsel status. Our Kara Scannell is with us to explain more. A big question coming out of this news over the weekend was, OK, or Friday, was trial now? Right. I mean, so they're in this filing overnight arguing that the gun diversion, remember there's the tax plea yes. agreement that fell apart and this gun diversion. They're saying, hey, Judge, that's a valid and binding agreement between both DOJ and us. Now, DOJ in their filing on Friday said that deal was done. So this is obviously a wrinkle that is going to continue wrinkle. to fester here. And we might see some more um, filings over that. But, you know, under that agreement, it meant that Hunter Biden would avoid the serious felony gun charge if he abided by certain terms for 24 months. And the judge had a big issue with this, particularly saying she wasn't sure if it was constitutional because they had a role for her in there. Sort of ironically, they put that role in there thinking that it would avoid the politics of the situation in case there was ever any question of if he broke that agreement. Uh, you know, but also in this filing and over the weekend, Hunter Biden's lawyer saying, you know, they're kind of putting some blame on DOJ for mucking this up, saying that they had come to them to do plea talks and that they had written these agreements that the judge had questions with. And then, of course, now DOJ wanting to tear up. Uh, but one of Hunter Biden's attorneys, Abby Lowell, was on CBS this weekend. Uh, here's what he said. It's not inevitable. And I think and what you're trying I, to avoid one. I, I, we're, yes, we were trying to avoid one all along. And so were the prosecutors who came forward to us and were the ones to say, can there be a resolution short of a prosecution? So they wanted it and maybe they still do want it. So there they're obviously still hopeful that they're able to work out some kind of plea deal. But obviously the timing here is now very different. Kara, can I take a step back here? Because I have a ton of questions about what this means or what it doesn't mean, if it's jurisdictionally related. What does the special counsel designation actually mean for Hunter Biden and for uh, David Weiss going forward? Well, what's interesting is that the attorney general, Merrick Garland, and David Weiss have both said that he had authority to bring to decide whether, when and where to bring charges. Right. Right. That goes to this question of venue. Right. If it's not in Delaware, could they bring it in Washington or California? Now, the special counsel does make this now a formal arrangement versus him being told he had these powers, but it also gives him a budget so he could hire more staff if he wants to. You know, it's also a big question of why now? What has changed? Is there different evidence? This investigation has been going on for five years. 
you know, so where, why now is still the big question that we don't have an answer from the Justice Department on of what was it that made it important just now to do this. But certainly means, for one thing, that this is not going to wrap up in a plea agreement in the next couple of weeks. This is clearly going to be a longer process. Yeah, no question. Kara Scannell, thank you for joining us now uh, for our panel, national political reporter for the Associated Press, Michelle Price, White House correspondent for Reuters, Jeff Mason, and CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, I want to start with you. Um, Special counsels, no matter how narrow the scope seems to be at the start, have a long history or, or some iteration of special counsel has a long history of expanding yeah. uh, and creating major headaches, both legally and politically. What's your read on the intent behind this designation? So they do have a history of sort of spinning out. And actually, I was just looking at the actual document DOJ signed, Merrick Garland signed, appointing David Weiss, saying, how limited is it? And it's not very limited. It basically says anything to do with the Hunter Biden investigation, which is quite broad. And, and Kara's right. Now that David Weiss has been named special counsel, he does have a bit more independence. It's not all that different from being a U.S. attorney, but he does have a bit more independence separation from the attorney general. My big question, again, is why? Why now? Why in the case that's been going on for five years, three days, four days ago, there was no need for special counsel. Now there is. And what DOJ said is the reason is, quote, extraordinary circumstances. Now that's pulled out of the law. What's extraordinary now that wasn't extraordinary five weeks ago when they were ready to go in court and wrap this up for a misdemeanor. Uh, So DOJ has botched this, in my view. Merrick Garland has botched this. And frankly, the way this has played out has actually lent credence to what the whistleblowers have said. I was just going to say that. And that issue of what the whistleblowers uh, said and did interviews on this network and elsewhere and testified before Congress isn't what came up in court when the plea deal fell apart, but it really seems to be more and more relevant right now. I think it's also interesting, Jeff Mason, that if the attorney general overrules the special counsel, as Ellie was informing me over the weekend, um, you get transparency. You have to tell Congress why you did it. And that's really important right now is transparency. I want to play something that President Biden said. This was back on May 5th. It's from MSNBC. It's days before this original plea deal came down about his son, Hunter. Here it is. My son's done nothing wrong. I trust him. I have faith in him. I know it's his son. He's also the president. And it is Merrick Garland. It is this attorney general, this administration uh, overseeing everything. So there are a lot of questions now about whether the president should be talking about this at all. And he usually doesn't. And that's a comment that has not aged well, given the fact that his son ended up agreeing to a plea deal that has now, of course, fallen apart. The political ramifications of this are huge for President Biden. And it's certainly not what he wants to see that this is going to be dragged out in the middle of the the campaign now as he goes into the fall and into a general election next spring. And it's it's a political weakness for him, not only because of the fact that it will be a story, but because of what was exemplified in that quote. He loves his son and he has a little bit of a blind spot for him. And that has is something that you can understand for a father and son. But politically, it's it's tricky. In my sense, correct me if I'm wrong here, there's some frustration behind the scenes in the West Wing. They're not going to talk about it, but frustration that it got to this point. It wasn't where they wanted to be, and they know that this is only going to prolong this issue. I think so, and and frustration within the campaign as well. I mean, I think apropos what each side can say, the White House will want to say even less than potentially President Biden's campaign because, of course, President Biden has said from the very beginning the DOJ is independent, whether it's on this, whether it's on President Trump. That was a big contrast he wanted to make to the, to the previous administration. But it's going to be hard, certainly for reporters who cover him and others out there not to be asking him about something with, with relation to his son. 
Uh, Michelle, obviously, we're also watching Georgia right now. The, the leading contender for the Republican nomination is facing his potential fourth indictment. Um, at this point in time, do you, in your reporting, think voters actually care? Uh, and I'm not trying to minimize anything. I'm just saying that, like, people are, are, can get numb to this. There's a lot of it. It's really hard to understand, given how many there are. I mean, the question is which voters. Um, is it changing any minds, though? Right. Probably not. You know, for Democratic voters, this just adds to the pile of what they already, how they already feel about Donald Trump. They have a long list of, of reasons they think he's unqualified to be president. Republican voters, I mean, you'll talk to them in early states. They'll tell you that, that they think... Donald Trump was a great president. They think he did wonderful things. They think maybe he did something that wasn't quite on the up and up, but it wasn't a crime in some of these cases. But they see all of these as a vast conspiracy against him. And that's the way he's presented this on the campaign trail. I think you bring up such a good point, Ellie. If you could answer this. I had someone over the weekend ask me, an independent voter, I don't understand why they're all coming now. That is a great question. Um, and I've been sort of banging that drum for the last couple of years. I mean, he will have a rhetorical point. Let's put aside, we don't know what the motivations, but even if you assume the best of motivation by all these prosecutors, isn't it interesting that nobody charged anything until now? And four of them come in a, what, three, four month stretch between April and now? How do you explain that? I think it's partially, I think each one is its own story. Yeah. I mean, Merrick Garland, I think, just had just inertia. I think he had no appetite to do this for the first year and a half. The political winds got strong enough. And I think the same thing, by the way, in appointment of special counsel. I think Merrick Garland, frankly, has shown himself to be a windsock. He just, when the political pressure gets too much, he just goes whichever way the wind's blowing. For a year and a half, he didn't want any part of Donald Trump on January 6th until the pressure built because of the January 6th committee. And then what does he do a few months later? He appoints Jack Smith. Same thing here. He was hoping the Hunter Biden case would go away with a quick plea, political pressure built, and then he goes, well, special counsel. It's not a, it's not a strong way to be as an attorney general. Kara, based on your reporting, windsock aside. Uh, <laughs> I haven't heard that word. <laughs> I don't know what they it's are, right? Gonna, it's going to yeah, yeah, okay, okay. multicolored. Inside, inside yes. the Justice Department on the fourth and fifth floor, what is their read on why it got to this point from your sources? I mean, they're not saying anything publicly about this, but I think, you know, Ellie raises a good point that you know, the performance in the court with the plea agreement, it just all started to go off the rails, right? I mean, the prosecutors and Hunter Biden's team were not on the same page about the immunity deal. And then, of course, the judge just scotched it all. I mean, there are these questions from these whistleblowers. They do make some points. And it seems, I think, that they're probably, even though DOJ is not saying anything, mm -hmm. they have to be responding to the political pressure because that seems to be the only thing that's different right. in the course of the past couple of months that's changed. Yeah, it's windsock. Which that's going to literally gonna rattle around morning. my brain for the next six to ten hours. All right, Kara, Ellie, Michelle, Jeff, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. New reports out of Maui that say fire hydrants were running dry as firefighters were trying to battle the wildfires there. We're going to speak to a firefighter about her experience battling the blaze that destroyed her neighborhood, burned her parents' home. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, overnight, the number of people killed in last week's deadly wildfires in Hawaii climbed to 96. It's expected to go even higher. Crews are still searching through burnt-down homes and landmarks looking for victims. The community of Lahaina now has to rebuild. The Pugilau family is among those facing that daunting task. Joining us now is Keisha and Tasha Pugilau. Their parents lost their home in the wildfire. 
and their uncle died in the blaze. Tasha is also a firefighter in Maui and helped battle the blaze. Uh, guys, thank you so much. I- I'm so sorry for what you have been through. Uh, Keisha, I want to start with you. You know, we-, we were showing pictures of your family's home. Uh, can you talk about the experience over the course of the last several days? So the last several days has been uh, devastating, to say the least, for myself and my family, but relieving. Um, We have gone through um, searching and um, worrying where my family is, where my loved ones are, and then finding them. Um, not all are found, but my mom and my dad and my sister are safe. And that's the most important um, thing for me. I know um, you lost your uncle in all of this. And the human toll has gone up dramatically over the weekend and sadly is expected to continue to rise. Um, Tasha, for you, battling the flames of this, as you're also trying to cope with your personal tragedy of losing your loved ones, how do you even do it? Um, the support from each other, support from the fellow firefighters and first responders, because we're all in this together and uh, we've all lost something. Um, staying focused and looking ahead and seem busy. Yeah. Keisha, you mentioned uh, that there are some in your family that you have not gotten into contact with yet. Can you talk about the process right now of trying to reach people, given the scale of the devastation? We've heard from so many families that are in the same exact position. What does it entail? So from... um August 8th, from the first day of the, the start of this horrendous. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> so sorry. Oh, oh you're fine. You're fine. Fire. Um, we, we went from no contact um, to finding them. And so we, <clears throat> luckily, the Lahaina community came together to help with that and um, social media really, really pulled through. Right now, we are, um, I come from a very large family, the Pagdilao Ohana back in Lahaina, and we have one uncle not accounted for. And from the story from his wife, when what she saw firsthand, we're still looking and, um, Thankfully, cell phone towers are going are, are going back up. We're getting more um, um, communication with family and friends, but it's still um, hard. Tasha, our viewers can see on your shirt um, that you're a firefighter and you have been out battling this blaze while trying to cope and be there for your family. Can you speak? to what it was like on the ground battling these flames that at, at times were moving more than a mile a minute because of the high winds? Um, it seemed surreal. Um, it seemed like an apocalypse and everything seemed to be on fire. And um, 
yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was really hard to focus at times, but we had a job to do and um, stood by people that watched their houses burn and they kept continuing to fight. And yeah, it's, it, it's still surreal. And I think no matter how many times we see it every day, going back to help clean up and help put spot fires out or, it, it just, it's still seems like a nightmare that we're trying to wake up from. But yeah. every day, every hour seems to keep better. So, Tasha, can you tell people what do you need right now, given you're on the ground, you're helping people, you're still putting out spot fires uh, for people who are watching and have only seen the pictures? What do you need? What does the community need right now? I think um, the community right now is is healing, they're stable with resources that everyone, we've had an outpour of support from Outer Island, from the continent, from our island, from our community. I think supplies wise, I think we're stable. Give our time, give us time to heal and let this place, people get set and then we're gonna need a lot more. But right now we, also, we just need time. I know a lot of people's eager to get back into Lahaina and see, see what's left, um, but give give our first responders time, let the, let people clean up the area and keep make sure it's safe before coming back. I, I think that's I think that's what we need right now. Some time and patience and yeah, time and patience. Well, we know you guys are, are working uh, on the resource side as well. You've set up a GoFundMe to help assist your parents rebuild. So far you've raised more than half of your $100,000 goal. Viewers can see it there on the screen uh, right now. Keisha and Tasha Pagdalao, uh, guys, can't express our condolences enough. Thank you very much for sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you. And for more information about how else you can help the Hawaii wildfire victims, go to cnn.com slash impact or text Hawaii to 707070 to well, this morning, an investigation is underway into why a house in Pennsylvania exploded. It killed five people, including a child. Those details ahead. A sad story to tell you about this morning. A home explosion in Pennsylvania has killed five people, including a child. Three others hurt in this blast over the weekend. County officials in Plum, a Pittsburgh suburb, say it happened Saturday morning the blast left this neighborhood covered in debris. Officials still don't know what caused it. Paula Sandoval is here. I always worry about things like yeah. this. How did this happen? Hey guys, the explosion was absolutely ferocious. The pictures are really telling. As you mentioned, this actually happened over the weekend on Saturday morning, just north of the city of Pittsburgh. It's a suburb there of uh, Plum Borough, Plum Borough uh, Pennsylvania. And all five people dead, you mentioned a child among those. We do understand that the search is over for any additional missing. Those pictures, again, they are extremely telling, including a ring camera from, uh, from a neighbor's house. I want you to see and hear the explosion yourself. Now, keep in mind, this explosion is actually off camera. It's very hard to miss. So that there's that vantage point, but just the aerial pictures alone almost looks like a tornado sort of carved a path through here. You see a total of three homes that were destroyed in all of this. The gas crew company 
uh, was dispatched to the scene immediately. They were able to determine that uh, at this point that the system was operating as expected, though a, a final conclusion could take months. And we did learn overnight there have been at least two previous incidents, one house explosion Last year, that is still under investigation. And then a deadly one that happened in 2008 pulled up the final NTSB report. They turned out to be an excavation team that actually damaged a natural gas line outside of the home. That eventually led to the explosion. And when they say that it may take months to find out, it's not an estimation. It took about eight months for them to find out on that one. So scary. Polo, thank you. Thinking of all those and their family members. Yeah, thanks. Well, two people ejected from a jet during an air show in Michigan. We're going to have that remarkable video just ahead. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for starting your day with us. And let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, August 14th. Breaking overnight, 96 people are dead in the Hawaii wildfires, and only 3% of the disaster area has even been searched. The governor calling it a fire hurricane it spread faster than a mile a minute. And now, a new lawsuit against the state's main electric provider. Hours from now, the Fulton County District Attorney set to begin presenting her case to a grand jury in the Georgia election subversion case. This means a potential fourth indictment looms over former President Trump, as CNN exclusively learns about key evidence obtained by prosecutors. And a home explodes outside of Pittsburgh, killing five people. Gas systems were operating as designed, according to officials who say it could take months or maybe years to figure out why. The raid of a newspaper headquarters in Kansas is raising serious concerns over First Amendment rights. Police seizing everything from computers to servers to cell phones of reporters and editors. Also, the LAPD says a mob of people stole $100,000 worth of merchandise during a daytime robbery. We'll show you what was caught on camera. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning. Good morning, Poppy. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. There's a lot of news, but we are starting with the devastation that continues to roll out in Hawaii. 96 people now confirmed dead in those wildfires, with only 3% of the disaster area searched this morning. Hawaii's governor says FEMA crews are discovering other tragedies, quote, in an ongoing fashion. He says more search and rescue crews are on the way, along with 20 cadaver dogs. Authorities are asking family members to provide DNA to help identify those who have died. There are also so many new questions this morning about how this continued with the response. Was it fast enough? The power company, Hawaiian Electric, is also facing a new lawsuit this morning for not cutting off electricity when forecasters warned about such powerful wind gusts. The New York Times is reporting this morning that firefighters had to cope with fire hydrants that were running dry. An official says backup generators maintain the supply, but water spewed out of melting pipes, leading to low pressure. Listen to the governor of Hawaii. When the winds rose up, winds gusting as high as 81 miles per hour, fire spread, spread rapidly. We believe between 60 miles per hour and 81 miles per hour across that part of the island. And that meant that fire traveled one mile every minute that level of destruction in a fire hurricane, something new to us in this age of global warming, was the ultimate reason that so many people perished. Now, you could hear the governor there calling this a, quote, fire hurricane, something new to them, the flames spreading a mile per minute. Keep in mind, that's faster than anyone can run. If you're driving, here's a sense of what that was like. 
MG, wrong turn! Wrong turn! MG, MG, MG. Oh, Just keep going, keep oh, going. No, 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 not like this. Not like this! Keep going, not keep going. like this! No! Get the car! <laughs> Help us! Oh, send your angels! Guys, start praying. Lord, oh no, oh no, oh no. No, we gotta get out or something. There's nowhere to go. The car, the car. That's devastating video. We should know those people are safe. They ended up taking shelter on rocks. Other survivors now struggling with what to do next as many line up to get back into Lahaina. Here's CNN's Mike Valerio. Poppy and Phil, aloha, good morning, just after 1 a.m. here in Hawaii, and we're standing at the only way to get into the Lahaina disaster zone. This is a checkpoint that is manned, guarded 24-7, because, of course, behind where we're standing, a highly sensitive area. But this checkpoint is also a profoundly emotional juncture for people as they return perhaps to their homes for the first time. In fact, a few hours ago, we met a man, Blake, who in the spirit of Ohana, the spirit of family, extended family, said that he knows that his house is gone, but went back in to help his Ohana. Listen to what he told us. My home burned down. Um, I live right in Lahaina. So I lost pretty much everything except what I could grab on my way out. It was just, it was so fast. It was unbelievable. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm not going to go look at my home or anything. I've seen the videos. It's just, there's nothing left. So I just have a truckload of gas and I have, you know, a lot of friends that are stuck over there. So I'm just going to check in with them all and make sure everybody's okay. But we certainly do have good news to report, and it concerns the ease of access into the disaster zone. If you're a family trying to see what, if anything, has survived. Earlier in the weekend, it was best described as organized chaos, a time lapse that we took on the southern shores of western Maui, showing a mile-long line, a queue with trucks, families, some of them sleeping overnight to try to see what has survived. That has uh, uh, gotten to be a more organized system with this checkpoint behind us being the only way in. There was confusion about where to go in, where to go out, and who could access. So if we show you the map, there is now a counterclockwise way of getting from this checkpoint towards the disaster, into the disaster zone of Lahaina. The burn zone is still off limits, but now, as you can tell in this early hour of the day, it is now a trickle. Most people have seen what is left as they begin a new chapter of how to move forward. Poppy and Phil, back to you. Mike Valerio, thank you. We're going to keep following this story throughout the course of this morning. Stay with us. Yeah, we absolutely will. Also this, this morning, Donald Trump facing a possible fourth indictment as a district county in Ful district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, gets ready to present her case to a grand jury. As soon as today, Fonnie Willis is expected to start presenting that evidence in her sprawling investigation of the alleged scheme to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election victory in that state. And CNN has exclusively learned that prosecutors have text messages and emails that show Trump's lawyers were behind the breach of a voting system in Georgia. Over the weekend, Trump continued to insist he did nothing wrong. Is there any chance you take a plea deal in Georgia? We did nothing wrong. We don't ever take yes, a plea deal. Yes, sir. We don't take plea deals. It's a wise guy question. Are you just a wise guy? We don't take plea deals because I did nothing wrong. It's called election interference. You know what that is? Because this is, these indictments are brought
Well, Sarah Murray is live for us outside the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta. Sir, there are a lot of different threads here. You've been reporting on this extensively over the course of months now. Take a step back. What do people need to know as we enter this moment in this case? Well, yeah, Phil, it's not just months. The Fulton County District Attorney has been working on this case for two and a half years, and this is in many ways the culmination. She's likely to begin today presenting this case before a grand jury, and sources say she's going to seek charges against more than a dozen individuals. And this comes as we're learning about new evidence prosecutors have swept up in the course of this investigation. Security precautions already underway at the courthouse in Atlanta as Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to begin her grand jury presentation this week on former President Donald Trump and his allies' alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. It's the clearest sign she intends to seek charges this week as the widespread investigation into election interference comes to a head. Jeff Duncan, Georgia's former lieutenant governor and CNN contributor, confirming he's been summoned to appear before the grand jury. I did just receive notification to appear on Tuesday morning. I'll certainly answer whatever questions put in front of me. Independent journalist George Cheedy posted on social media he's also been called to testify Tuesday. Cheedy said he walked in on a group of shadow electors gathered to sign an illegitimate certification for then-President Trump in December 2020. They all but frog-marched me out of the room, and then they posted somebody out front to make sure nobody else went in. In addition to putting forward fake electors and the infamous phone call from President Trump to Georgia's Secretary of State... I just want to find uh, 11,780... The breach of voting systems in rural Republican Coffee County is part of the probe. Sources tell CNN investigators have long suspected the breach was a top-down effort by Trump's team, rather than an organic effort by Trump backers. And sources say they have text messages and emails that directly connect members of Trump's legal team to that breach. Did you have any sense that this was sort of tied to other operatives in the Trump campaign, that it was anything beyond sort of lower-level people in Coffee County? Not initially, but uh, there were allegations, and, and then as you dig down deep, more is revealed, and then you realize that that wasn't truthful. Surveillance video previously obtained by CNN shows a local election official escorting a team of pro-Trump operatives in to examine the machines on January 7, 2021. The group included Scott Hall, an Atlanta bail bondsman and Fulton County Republican poll watcher. I'm the guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County to have them inspect all of those computers. They scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives, and scanned every single ballot. According to text messages obtained by CNN, former county elections official Misty Hampton authored a, quote, written invitation six days prior to examine machines. That invitation shared with attorneys working with Trump and others hunting for election fraud on behalf of Trump's then lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Just landed back in D.C. with the mayor. Huge things starting to come together. An employee for the firm hired to access voting machines wrote in one text in an apparent reference to former New York Mayor Giuliani. We were just granted access by written invitation to Coffee County Systems. Yay, another message reads. 
When I spoke to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, he insisted his client had nothing to do with the breach in Coffee County and pointed the finger at Sidney Powell, who was another member of Trump's post-election legal team, saying you can't hold Rudy Giuliani accountable for what Sidney Powell was up to. Guys? All right, Sarah Murray, live for us down in Atlanta. Thank you. Joining us now, two journalists on the ground covering this also in Georgia, Tamar Hellerman, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution senior reporter, and Patricia Murphy, political columnist at also at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ladies, thanks so much for being with us. Um, Tamar, let me just ask you what is so critical about the procedure of how this is going to unfold, and if you could also speak to Trump's team wanting to see this thing, if he is indicted here. It's a state case, which matters for a whole host of reasons. They want it in federal court. So we're expecting this presentation from Fulton County DA Willis and her team to take about two days. That's how long previous racketeering cases have taken her office. And this grand jury only meets on Mondays and Tuesdays. So we're not expecting the DA to want this to extend another week. Um, you showed in the segment before with Sarah Murray that former Lieutenant Governor Duncan and other witnesses have confirmed they're going to be coming in Tuesday morning. Um, and we're expecting some other people as well to come and inform this grand jury of why they believe there's there's probable cause that it was more likely than not that the former president and other allies um, committed um, a whole host of um, different crimes in Georgia, including racketeering. Um, you mentioned that the former president and his team likely wanting to move this case to federal court. We're expecting his legal team to make that move or, or to at least initiate that shortly after the, the former president is uh, indicted, if he is indicted here. That would get him presumably a more conservative jury pool. Patricia, for, for those who maybe haven't been following this on a granular level, like, like you two have, like Sarah Murray has, um, the significance of the two witnesses that we know are coming in, uh, the journalist uh, and the former lieutenant governor, what does that tell you about uh, this moment, this case? Yeah, so we could start with George Cheedy, who's the independent journalist. <clears throat> he uh, stumbled upon the meeting of the alternate electors or fake electors, whatever we want to call them, on December 14th in the state capitol. Uh, we heard him speak there on the package earlier. And that tells us that certainly this is a situation that Fulton County uh, DA, Fannie Willis, wants to put in front of the grand jury that fake elector scheme, including the level of secrecy that was involved. Uh, GOP officials later said, no, this was a completely open meeting. There was nothing nothing uh, that we were trying to hide from the public. But George Sheedy said, no, indeed, I was marched out. And he was filming that on his iPhone at the time when it happened. And for, Je for Jeff Duncan, he was one of the rare Republicans here in Georgia who would have been privy to a lot of the inner workings of what Trump and his team were telling GOP officials. But he was no longer at that point loyal to Donald Trump. He was speaking out at the time in real time, saying that this election was not stolen. So he'll be somebody who is not seen as somebody who is um, a partisan Democratic actor coming after Donald Trump. He was a Republican at the time and simply saw the facts differently and would have been on the inside of a lot of those calls and decisions being made at the time. Tamar, can you speak to the importance of the, the exclusive reporting our colleague Sarah Murray uh, got with Zach Cohen, that prosecutors in this probe have these text messages and emails directly connecting members of Trump's legal team to the breach of voting systems in Coffee County. That is a wildly pro-Trump county, like 70 percent Trump and like 10,000 votes here. So 
why, why would officials be so concerned there and want to go down there? Well, Fulton D.A. Fani Willis's jurisdiction is only Fulton County, of course, but she can pull in other evidence from counties outside of Fulton and even outside of Georgia if it can help her prove that there was a broader conspiracy, a broader scheme. And so these text messages are able to help show that that just like Sarah said, this wasn't some organic effort on the ground, but this, in fact, can be tied to members of former President Trump's inner circle, folks like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, who are already under investigation as part of this case. Uh, Patricia, it seems like an inevitability at this point, obviously, the, the reporting about the 12 individuals facing indictments. Is there any chance the former president is not one of those individuals based on uh, who you've been talking to? Well, of course, we don't know exactly because it hasn't happened yet. Um, but oh, it looks like we just lost uh, Patricia. I, actually, Tamar, can you address that? Oh, wait, Patricia, are you back? You froze for a little bit. Oh, Tamar, yeah, we I, wanted to I'm ask here. you. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's it's fine. It's fine. Um, Tamar, real quick before we let you guys go, your thoughts on, on kind of what Patricia was was answering there. At this point, I think it's all but certain that the former president is indicted here in Fulton County. Uh, he's admitted as much in recent days while on the campaign trail. And I think the fact that the DA has sent letters to local law enforcement in recent months telling them to get ready, telling them that her indictment decision is likely to incite a lot of anger and emotion, that's not the kind of letter you send if you don't plan on pursuing an indictment against a former president. We appreciate it. Thank you, ladies, both. You know this inside and out. <laughs> Working down there. We'll have you back soon. Thanks very much. All right, look at this. What you're going to see on the left was our next guest's home, condo, before the deadly wildfires swept through, Miami, through Maui. What you see on the right is what is left of it, completely destroyed. She joins us next with her story. And later, $100,000 worth of merchandise stolen from a Los Angeles mall in the latest smash-and-grab attack. We're going to have that coming up ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There's a fire over there. Oh my God, there's a fire starting right there. The death toll from Hawaii's wildfires growing now to 96 this morning. Hawaii's governor calling it 1,000 degree fire hurricane. It spread faster than a mile a minute. Our next guest was out getting ice at the store with her boyfriend on Tuesday when smoke became heavy and fires erupted all around them. Emily says it felt like a horror movie, black smoke coming closer and closer to them. That's about when they received the first alert on the radio. Maui Emergency Management Agency has issued an evacuation order on Maui Island for Kealawea Malka subdivision due to a brush fire. Now, Emily and her boyfriend made it back to her condo where shrubs and palm trees were now on fire. She rescued her two cats, grabbed some water. They all eventually made it to safety, but what they left behind, that's now gone. This is what remains of her condo, which she bought two years ago and renovated. Emily's back with family in Wisconsin now, plans to return to Maui in the next 10 days. And Emily Jones Frisk joins us now. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, just the experience itself, I, I was struck uh, by the fact that the first real alert you got was via radio. 
Did that surprise you? Uh, why didn't you get or hear about anything else before then? Yeah, so um, I guess there are sirens in place and warnings in place for hurricanes and tsunamis. Um, I don't know if those warnings are typically used for other natural disasters, but they weren't in this case. We certainly weren't hearing any sirens or being warned in any sort of way that there was something this large happening. Um, I'm told that we were sent texts. Um, however, we didn't have cell service for at least a couple hours at this point. I want to say most of the island um, on the west side had lost cell service around the noon, one o'clock. So by the time that the storms were really hitting around four o'clock, no one had any service. So no one was, no one had any idea what was going on. How did you guys, again, maybe this is obvious by sight and uh, just kind of the feeling or sound or smell of things. How did you guys know it was time you were in bad shape? It was time to leave. Um, so we, yeah, we were getting ice. Um, we were stuck in traffic and um, standstill traffic in his Jeep. Um, we had the Jeep loaded full of ice so that we realized we didn't have power. We were going to try to keep the fridge cool overnight to try to keep things lasting as long as possible. Um, and then it was when we were stuck in traffic, it was probably around four o'clock. We had maybe been in traffic for about a half an hour at this point. Um, and we had gotten the warning. Um, the smoke had just started to get darker and darker and it was just surrounding us just like a nightmare. Um, and the winds were so strong. It was blowing debris everywhere. There were almost like fire tornadoes um, and debris tornadoes. And then little fires were just starting everywhere. There was embers just starting fires on the ground. Um, trees were falling and branches were starting on fire. Power lines were falling down. Um, and it just got to a point where we kind of started to panic. Um, if there was, we were just surrounded. Are you in touch with neighbors and friends? Do you know how they're doing uh, at this point? Yeah, um, I am very, very lucky. Um, I feel like I'm one of the few people that all of my people are accounted for um, and okay. So I feel very fortunate. However, there are at least a thousand people still missing. Um, and I do know of people who have people who are missing. Um, and it's absolutely horrible. Can you just say, before I let you go, the community itself, you know, you've made the point, you, I think you bought your condo two years ago and renovated it. We've seen the pictures of it uh, and its destruction, but the community itself is very close-knit, has uh, almost been completely destroyed. What drew you to the community? Um, so I originally moved out to Lahaina um, because of the whales that we um, get in the wintertime from um, the whale migration, the humpbacks. So I came out there um, kind of following that, working in um, animal conservation, and it would just became clearer and clearer the longer that I was in Maui that the community was so close-knit. Um, and I think that's why I've stayed so long was because I've just felt so welcome with open arms. Um, and I think going off of that point, it is really important to point out that the community has really stepped up for each other and helping each other out in this um, crisis. And I think that they are very disappointed in the lack of help that they're receiving federally and at a state level. Um, and at the end of the day, I think if anyone is looking to help, that it's important to know that monetary donations are very helpful. Making sure that you're doing your 
research into looking into where these donations are actually going, making sure that they're legitimate um, before you're sending money. But the donations are really helpful so that the community can allocate them accordingly. Um, I know we're needing camping supplies and means of power, such as generators and solar power. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's really important to reiterate that tourists need to stay home right now. Um, we need your help elsewhere, but we have such limited resources that um, we need people to stay home right now. All right. Emily Jorns Frisk, an important message. Thank you for sharing uh, what had to have been a, a, a terrifying experience. We appreciate it. Thank you. And as Emily was noting, for more information of how you can help by wildfire victims, go to CNN.com slash impact or text Hawaii to 707070 to donate. Remember when President Biden said this about New York Congressman Mike Lawler? Mike is the kind of guy that when uh, when I was in the Congress, they were the kind of Republican I was used to dealing with. But uh, he's not one of these MAGA Republicans. Now, as the balance of power is very much up for grabs in November, one of the Democrats trying to unseat Lawler is saying people were, quote, horrified by those comments. So the crucial fight for control of the House already underway with Democrats zeroing in on districts that were won by Republicans in 2020, despite being Biden districts that he carried before. Republicans control the House by just 10 seats. That means Democrats need to flip six in next year's midterm elections to regain control. Our chief congressional correspondent, Manu Rajri, spoke with one of the Republicans from a blue district outside of New York City and the Democrats trying to unseat him. Truly remarkable. It was a stunner last year, giving the GOP a razor-thin House majority. Six Republicans winning in the blue New York suburbs. Now, they're the most endangered. So when President Biden recently called vulnerable freshman Mike Lawler... kind of Republican I was used to dealing with, but uh, he's not one of these MAGA Republicans. Democrats like Mondaire Jones, seeking to unseat Lawler, were furious. People were horrified when they heard what Joe Biden had to say. So did Biden get it wrong? Biden not only got it wrong, uh, but I think it was just factually, you know, like, absurd. <laughs> Lawler is one of 18 Republicans in districts Biden carried in 2020, whose fates will determine the next majority. I ran to represent this district. Lawler and, says he's uh, appealing I to moderates. I don't look at it as a, a vulnerability. I've won twice in two-to-one Democratic districts. When the president uh, came to Westchester and he said on stage, I'm the type of Republican he could work with. But Lawler's opponents are seizing on his votes in the conservative-dominated House. Like when the New York freshman voted to rescind a Pentagon policy reimbursing personnel traveling for abortions. So he's totally fine with women in the military fighting for his freedom, but he won't even protect their rights. Lawler defends his vote. Using taxpayer funds to pay for travel uh, related to abortion services. We don't do that. Lawler could soon be in another difficult spot if the House tries to begin an impeachment inquiry into Biden. I think for me, with respect to impeachment, uh, we're not there yet. Another complication, the prospect that Donald Trump could be atop the ticket as he faces criminal charges. Mike Lawler cannot run away from Donald Trump, and this is a district that hates Donald Trump. Do you think that Trump deserves to be in jail? I think Trump deserves to be in prison, but you know what? Let's leave that up to the juries to decide. 
Lawler is critical of Trump's actions after he lost in 2020. I think uh, Donald Trump's uh, conduct post-election was wrong. It was wrong. But not saying if he backed Trump as a nominee. Would you support Trump if he's the nominee? Look, at the end of the day, the the uh, Republican primary voters are going to choose who the nominee is. I want the party to move in a different direction. Though he has his limits. If he's convicted, he should not be uh, running for public office, period. Lawler says Jones, who used to represent a more liberal New York district, is out of step. You're not a pragmatist. You're a political hack. Jones's primary opponent, Liz Garrity, says this. He's taken positions that I think are going to cause him problems in a general election. Of course, we need to end mass incarceration. And, Among them, and discussing really defunding the police in 2020, something he is now walking back. I understood those words, which are very, in retrospect, poor choices of words. Many voters here are still up for grabs. Nobody's won my vote yet, you know. Now, in a sign of just how important a district like this one is for the fight for control of the House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy's Super PAC released a memo just this week detailing what it is calling the Blue State Project, saying the House will be won or lost in Democratic strongholds like this one, and McCarthy himself plans to travel to New York later this month. Manu Raju, CNN, Piermont, New York. Joining us now are Republican strategist Joe Pinion and Democratic strategist and former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Basil Smeichel. Uh, I want to get to Manu's beautifully windswept hair. Yes, it was. Uh, in a minute, but I want to start, Basil, with your reaction uh, to uh, what President Biden said about a frontline Republican, potentially majority maker, earlier this year. It's vexing. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not helpful. Uh, when you have someone like uh, the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, and if you believe the reports in the spring, being intentional about saying that he wants to be engaged in the state Democratic Party to mm -hmm. make sure that Democrats can win. We need all, uh, all eyes on this state. There are about three, maybe even four seats that Democrats can pick up in New York mm -hmm. uh, and flip them from what occurred uh, just two years ago. Um, so it's an unhelpful comment. But I would, you know, take, you know, Mondaire Jones, for example, really strong leader. He wound up having to leave uh, that district to go run in another district in the more southern part of New York City. So through the redistricting, through the redistricting that was largely responsible for the I House Republican correct, majority. Which is yeah. which yeah. we actually have to come back to because the judge threw out those lines and we have to redraw them again. So there's a lot of turmoil yeah. here, but there's certainly a lot of opportunity for Democrats in 2024. Joe, you ran for Senate in New York. So you know what it's like to run as a Republican in New York. What's interesting to me is those Republicans picked up those seats when the economy was worse. I'm not saying people feel good about the economy now. They don't. But inflation was more vexing an issue for Democrats. How about now? Look, I think there are plenty of for issues that are going to be just as vexing. I think if you look at what President Biden was able to do, uh, he played his Trump card, no pun intended. Uh, he emptied the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He was able to help ease those gas prices down. He was able to lean on the fact that the inflation they call transitory was starting to come down. But I've often said, and we talked about this in the green room, that if you're looking at what we're going to be dealing with moving forward, you're going to have gas prices for heat and energy 
come this winter that are going to be astronomical without that safety valve to be able to be pulled again. You're going to be dealing with the fact that we are now seeing, again, the people defaulting on the car payments, the fact that the credit card debt now topping a trillion dollars, the fact that the median amount of savings has gone down precipitously and continues to come down, all while baby boomers are retiring to the tune of about 10000 per day. So those are the type of perfect storm conditions that end up with you staring down the barrel of a 2024 election with the average people saying, yes, the macro economy might be doing well, but the micro issues, the issues that everyday Americans decide their lives on, those are the ones that are really going to be putting downward pressure. But is on it that hard, a class. little bit harder for Republicans this time around in this state? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I think, mm-hmm. honestly, the real issue is going to be who is going to be at the top of the ticket? What are those issues going to be? Uh, I think, again, people can say whatever they want about President Trump. I don't know anyone who is a public figure or a private figure who gets indicted four times and is stronger because of it. So that is certainly going yeah. to be a, a difficult well, thing for President Trump, a difficult thing for the party. And Democrats have already proven they're going to try to take those indictments and put them around the neck of every single Republican up and down the ballot. But I think that's the critical point, right? It, it, I understand the Trump card was not a pun that was intended, but it actually fits to some degree here because if he's at the top of that, you saw how Mike Lawler was responding to Manu when asked about that question and the gymnastics it takes to try and address whether or not you would vote for the former president if he's the nominee. He's at plus 30 right now. These are districts that President Biden was winning by 8, 10, 12 points. That's right. So when the when Democrats lost those seats in 2022, Donald Trump was not on the top of the ticket, but he very likely can be um, in 2024. When you layer on top of that, uh, the fact that, you know, and I look at Speaker McCarthy in this, he's not doing something that the speaker is really supposed to do, which is protect your members. He hasn't really given any of the his members the opportunity to create any departure, any wiggle room away from Donald Trump. And as a result of that, they're going to get tagged, as Democrats should, for everything Donald Trump does. Every question is going to be, how do you respond to what Donald Trump did to these indictments, to, yeah. to, to a trial well, that we might end up seeing? Let's listen to how voters in Iowa, you may have heard the Iowa State Fair is ongoing right now. A lot of politicians <laughs> are there this weekend. Here's how some Iowa voters feel about those indictments. Are the indictments changing how you feel? No, because I do think a lot of that is for effect. A lot of those are trumped up. I don't believe most of it. You know, they're just out to get him. You know, it might turn around too, and they might, might, Biden might be the first one in jail. That was our Kyung Law, who talked to a whole lot of reporters over several days in Iowa, so... They seem to think nothing to see here. Look, I think if you're talking about the confines of a Republican primary, certainly this is not really going to affect President Trump. I think if you're talking about the general election, we're really focusing on those anywhere from 14 to 16 percent of people who say they're undecided today, most of whom are registered independents themselves. And those are the individuals that I think the individuals like Mike Lawler, people like Anthony D'Esposito mm-hmm. here in New York were able to convince in this 22 cycle uh, that the direction that Joe Biden was taking the country in was not for the best. And I think, again, uh, it is still going to be the economy stupid. We're still going to be talking about those economic indicators for the forgotten people on Main Street. I think that is going to be the message the Republicans who are successful in 2024 are going to stick to. Those who kind of get lost in these cultural wars, particularly these swing districts, are going to be able to be the ones that somehow find themselves on the wrong end of the pendulum. I think it's a good point because we try and view things through the prism of Trump or Biden. It's a national election. And 
those voters that Kyung was talking to, it had just tons of great sound that gives a great window into a Republican primary voter in Iowa, which is a very specific type of Republican primary voter, are not the voters who are going to decide right. in November of 2024. And so my question is, it has long been, uh, if you're the Biden campaign, do you want to run against former President Trump right now because he has all this baggage, because he has all these issues? Well, just and a quick yeah. thing, you know, there's an Iowa voter, but there's also a New Hampshire voter. You which is a very have, different which voter. Which is a very different voter. Right. You can have independents voting in that primary. So it could change the calculus um, depending on, you know, de- depending on the outcome. Having said that, I, listen, I, I do think, you know, Trump presents a really important foil for the Democrats for a, a thousand issues. But um, I do think that when you consider these issues of democracy, the uh, reproductive rights, which are still top of mind for so many voters, particularly suburban voters, as you talk, and, talk and about. And Republicans. And, and Republicans. So if you, if you cobble together Democrats who are firmly behind uh, Joe Biden in ways that Ob- Barack Obama wasn't at this time in his presidency, if you add those independent voters that you're talking about and you add disaffected Republicans, those that were so helpful to Democrats in 2022, if we can still keep that coalition it bears well for anybody that Joe Biden has to go up against in 2024. Look, I've long said you cannot rebuild the Obama coalition without an Obama on the ballot. And the only way that it actually came back together was a once-in-a-generational pandemic that effectively changed the entire landscape of the 2020 race. So I think what people aren't talking about, Joe Biden in 2024, a much different man from Joe Biden in 2019, 2020. I think the personal issues and the political baggage uh, will lead to this be a more interesting race as some people are giving the credit. Joe, thank you. Basil, great to have you. It has been almost a year since President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. Has it been effective in reducing inflation? We're going to tell you what it did and what it still needs to do ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. So it's been almost a year since President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. Starting today, senior administration officials, including the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, will travel across the country to mark the occasion. The act did accomplish some key legislative things. It was key on Biden's agenda, uh, also regarding the climate crisis, tax policy and health care. Did it reduce inflation? Julia Chatterley fact checking all of that with us this morning. That I mean, they refer to it any administration member over and over and over again. The IRA, the IRA, the IRA. Did it reduce inflation yet? Easy answer, no. But it was never really about reducing inflation, at least in the short term. It was always a medium to longer term play. So did it contribute to the fall in inflation over the past year? No, it didn't. But it doesn't mean it wasn't potent. And that's going to be part of the message, at least from Janet Yellen today. It was about boosting growth. It was about trying to shift away from fossil fuels and get greater investment to renewable energies. And Janet Yellen today is going to say, look, it's already contributed to $500 billion worth of manufacturing and clean energy investment. That's potent. And as you guys both know, when you travel around the world and you speak to other policymakers, it's been a political earthquake elsewhere in the world because they think it's going to mean that America attracts a heck of a lot of investment from Mm -hmm. other places. So let's not downgrade it. But as far as inflation is concerned, rate rises, China not growing the way we anticipated, gas prices falling. They're the contributors. And that's the second part of her message today, the resilient U.S. economy. Inflation has come down. No one a year ago when this act was signed would have believed that inflation would be below 4% in this country Mm -hmm. and unemployment would be below 4%. 
and that's been achieved. So there are good things to, uh, to talk about. The question is, do voters give them credit for it? Not right now. And that's why they're on the trail. Right. And particularly given the scale in terms of the, the time horizon for all of these things to take effect and to really be felt. And I should note, it's, this is not just Julia's opinion. Uh, the president. He said it last he week. He said it. <laughs> yeah, he fundraiser, did. So in fundraisers, President Biden is the, the best as a reporter because he's far more candid, even though he's not on camera. And he said, quote, <laughs> I wish I hadn't called it that because it has less to do with reducing inflation than it has to do with providing alternatives that generate economic growth. Yeah. But you there did you it go. for a reason. Yeah. Yes. It was the wrong name. And now you've got to change well, they the name. Got the policy. They think that's yeah. what matters. But they're not getting credit for it. Yes. And in Republican yeah. states, this is going to matter more and more because they're going to get credit for the investment and hopefully the jobs that come yeah. from it. Yeah. So it's fascinating dynamic. The message a lot better. more to come. Mm. The chattery. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the raid of a newspaper headquarters in Kansas is raising serious concerns over First Amendment rights. Police seizing everything from computers to servers to cell phones of reporters and editors. How the paper is responding. That's next. Well, this morning, 34 news and press freedom organizations, including CNN, have signed a letter condemning a police raid on a local newspaper and its owner's home in Kansas. Police searched the Marion County record and its owner's home north of Wichita on Friday. Now, they claim it's part of an investigation into, quote, identity theft. Officers seized computers, records and cell phones from reporters and editors. The owner called the searches illegal and warned that they could have a chilling effect. They know that if they keep our equipment long enough, it will pose grave dangers for us in terms of publishing. We're going to publish one way or the other. So the owner said that the searches appear to be connected to an investigation by the newspaper into how that newspaper obtained information related to a local restaurant owner. The restaurant owner accuses the paper of illegally obtaining and sharing documentation on a DUI citation she received about 15 years ago. The newspaper reports it was a source that shared the information with a reporter and they confirmed it through publicly available records. They also decided not to publish the information until after the restaurant owner started publicly accusing them of wrongdoing. Our senior media reporter and analyst, Sarah Fisher, joins us now. This is really much bigger than this paper, right? It matters what's happening here because it matters. It's a First Amendment question. You rarely see a raid like this happen. How did this happen? Was it legal? It's a great question, Poppy. And just to hit at your first point there, this is part of a broader trend within the United States of law enforcement and journalism companies going head to head. We've seen the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker has tracked that this has been increasing since the George Floyd protests in 2020. We saw hundreds of journalists get arrested. There were warrants issued for them to give over their footage. And so when we hear about something happening like this at a local paper, it's a reminder that this is part of the bigger problem in the U.S. You know, I cover a lot of you know, press freedom rights around the globe in autocratic countries. You rarely see things like this, a raid like this at a local paper uh, here in the U.S. Right now, it seems that there's a discrepancy between whether or not the paper was supposed to be raided, whether there was legal grounds to do it. You mentioned at the top, there's 34 news organizations joining the press freedom groups, arguing that this is against federal privacy law, that this is against federal law to do it. Of course, the local law enforcement is pointing at, you know, different situations saying that they had grounds to invade the home of this newspaper executive. Time will tell once we get a better sense of what's going on with the story. But for now, you have a lot of journalists very worked up over this situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, Sarah, and you cover this stuff every single day. It's on its face completely ridiculous. 
um, and I think it was stunning and got more stunning every single paragraph I would read about this story over the course of the last several days. What is your sense in terms of whether or not the rationale and justification from law enforcement holds up? It mean, my sense is that it doesn't. I mean, it's, like I said, it's very rare for law enforcement to raid a home like this, in part because we have such strong protections for the press and for the First Amendment that it's typically very hard for them to do something like this. But again, if they're trying to say that the reason they did it is because someone from the newspaper is involved in what they're trying to investigate, if that turns out to be the case, I might feel a little bit differently. But we just don't have enough details right now, Phil, to be able to understand their rationale, which is why I think that this type of situation yeah. is unprecedented and probably uncalled for. One of uh, the owner of the paper also tried to get from the judge the probable cause affidavit that would have led to the search warrant, was not able to obtain it because the judge told them that that didn't exist. And what I think is really notable here. They're still trying to get their weekly edition published, Sarah. They're working on, you know, guests, people, friends, acquaintances, laptops, et cetera, to get it out on Wednesday morning. And it just speaks to the dedication to journalism, to the profession. Yeah, you've seen this time and time again throughout the year. Remember that Las Vegas, mm -hmm. uh, Nevada journalism a reporter who was killed. They still had to get a paper out the next day. I think about a lot of our colleagues in Hawaii right now that are trying to print newspapers amid big wildfires. This is part of the toughness of journalism, but I hope it works out for in Kansas. All right, Sarah Fisher, we're going to keep our eye on this story for sure going forward. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up, the move from Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis that could signal yet another indictment for former President Trump. Also overnight in Hawaii, we learned 96 people have died from those wildfires in Maui. It's the deadliest wildfire now in modern U.S. history. What we're learning about a lawsuit that has just been filed ahead. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour, 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out west. We're glad you're with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We have a lot to get to. Uh, we'll get to the destruction in Hawaii in a moment, but let's start here. The district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, gearing up to present her case to a grand jury as Donald Trump faces a fourth potential indictment for trying to overturn the election. We have exclusive reporting on evidence obtained by prosecutors directly linking Trump's lawyers to the breach of a voting system there. And CNN is on the ground in Maui where the death toll from catastrophic wildfires has risen to 96 and it's expected to keep climbing. Only 3% of the scorched area even searched. Police in Los Angeles trying to track down a flash mob of robbers who ransacked a Nordstrom store in broad daylight. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. You're looking at live pictures of the Fulton County Courthouse this morning, a fourth possible indictment now looming over Donald Trump as the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, prepares to present her case to a grand jury. As soon as today, Fonnie Willis is expected to start presenting evidence in her sprawling investigation, the alleged scheme to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election victory in the state. CNN has exclusively learned through reporting by our colleagues Sarah Murray and Zach Cohen that prosecutors have obtained text messages and emails that show Trump's lawyers were behind the breach of a voting system in Georgia. Sources say the messages show Trump's team pushed for and gained access to sensitive voting software in the heavily Republican county there as they desperately tried to find evidence to back up their baseless claims of election fraud. And over the weekend, Trump continued to insist he did nothing wrong. 
Is there any chance you take a plea deal in Georgia? Plea deals. We do nothing wrong. We don't ever take yes, a plea deal. Yes, sir. We don't take plea deals. It's a wise guy question. Are you just a wise guy? We don't take plea deals because I did nothing wrong. It's President Trump, did you intend to overturn the 2020 election? At least two witnesses are set to appear before that grand jury this week. A journalist who witnessed a meeting of fake electors and Georgia's former Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, both key witnesses. Few people more familiar with the alleged scheme to overturn the election than our next guest, Tim Hafey. He was the lead investigator for the January 6th committee. Tim, I appreciate you being with us this morning. And I just want to begin on the significant new reporting that we just laid out from our colleagues about the fact that prosecutors in Georgia have text messages and emails that directly link folks at the top of the Trump camp, top Trump lawyers, to this effort to access and breach voting systems in Coffee County, Georgia. How significant that they have those things, they say, in writing? Yeah, Poppy, it's more of the same. It's really obvious that the Trump campaign, people in Washington, were responsible for a lot of what was going on in Georgia. That's why Fonnie Willis's investigation stretches beyond people in Georgia to folks in Washington. Apparently, the Trump campaign believed that there may have been some voting issues in Coffee County, and mm -hmm. they were able to obtain actual ballots and access to voting machines. It was at their direction that local officials in Coffee County provided that access. Again, that may be criminal and part of Fonnie Willis's ultimate indictment. Uh, part of this reporting has to do with what you guys dug into on the January 6th committee, and that is that last year to, to the committee, a former Trump official testified under oath that there were discussions about plans to access voting systems in the state of Georgia. Those discussions happening at the White House in a meeting in the Oval Office on December 18th, 2020. As you think about that now in the context of this new right. CNN reporting, what stands out to you? Well, again, it's, what stands out is that it is directed at the highest levels of the administration. The president himself was personally aware and directing this activity. And it was baseless. No evidence whatsoever emerged of any voting fraud. By then, Poppy, mm -hmm. Secretary of State Raffensperger had already conducted three separate audits, including right. a hand recount of every ballot cast in Georgia. So again, they were grasping at straws without a foundation, without a factual foundation to expect that there would be any evidence of fraud. By then, it had already been resolved. Tim, for people waking up this morning and hearing this news and this new reporting, they might say, but Trump already faces, you know, four federal charges as it pertains to efforts to overturn the election. And when you read through Jack Smith's latest indictment, it talks about what happened in Georgia. And they think, well, what's different? One thing that's different is that if he's indicted on a state well, level, that's harder for him to get rid of, right? But what else is different? Yeah, look, Georgia may be the most dramatic illustration of a pattern that occurred around the country. As mm -hmm. the, the special counsel's indictment indicates, this was not unusual. There were similar efforts afoot in other contested states. But Georgia, the president, is on the phone with the secretary of state. He calls the governor. He calls the lieutenant governor. His direct involvement is perhaps most pronounced. And that's probably because Georgia was perhaps the biggest surprise. It was a state that had not voted for a Democrat for president for a long time. Mm -hmm. So uh, local officials, which we're seeing this in Michigan, we're seeing it in other places, are bringing their own state charges because of criminal conduct that occurred in those states. 
I want to switch topics here uh, and ask you about what happened uh, in terms of David Weiss, the U.S. attorney, getting special counsel status, because you are a former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia. What is the significance of David Weiss getting special counsel status in the Hunter Biden investigation after the plea deal fell apart? And do you think it is way too late? Should Merrick Garland have done this a long time ago? I don't actually think it has much practical significance, Poppy, because the facts are the facts and facts determine whether or not there's criminal exposure or whether there's a trial or a negotiated disposition. The facts haven't changed. Now, U.S. Attorney Weiss has the ability to now bring charges in other jurisdictions beyond Delaware. Uh, it means that he will continue to do some investigative work. But I, I don't know that there are really many or any new facts mm -hmm. on this that are going to come out. The department's been at this for a long time. So it provides him some flexibility in terms of charging and negotiating, yeah. but I don't but know that it really changes the bottom line, the fact. Yeah, he said, though, Weiss, that he had that flexibility in other jurisdictions prior to this. I guess that's my question to you. Are you surprised that it's happening now? Why didn't it happen before? Well, I yeah, I think it was they were heading toward a negotiated resolution that sort of fell apart because the parties had a different interpretation yeah. of it. Now that that has fallen apart, they take a step back. And that might include using uh, grand juries in Washington, D.C. or mm -hmm. California or mm -hmm. other places where U.S. Attorney Weiss thinks there may have been conduct that was criminal. Well, Tim Hafey, I really appreciate your time with us this morning. Thanks. Thank you. And joining us now, national political reporter for the Associated Press, Michelle Price, White House correspondent for Reuters, Jeff Mason, and CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Um, I, I want to get to uh, the special counsel with Hunter Biden in a minute, but, but I want to swing back around, Ellie, because you'd made the point that some of the reporting that our colleagues Zach Cohen and Sarah Murray had over the course of this weekend, their exclusive reporting that there were text messages tying Trump officials, Trump campaign officials, uh, to what happened in Coffee County. Again, this can get very granular very fast. Explain to people why you think that matters. Well, it's great evidence because, it's first of all, it's an electronic communication. This isn't just some witness testimony about something that they overheard or saw. This is in black and white, and it directly ties members of Donald Trump's legal team, not necessarily Donald Trump himself, according to the reporting, but people who are one step removed from him, from this effort to breach these voting machines. And we've heard the defense from Donald Trump's lawyers, this is all just speech. Well, if you want to say what crosses the line into conduct, Breaching voting machines, physically breaching voting machines, that's a pretty clear example to me. So where this goes from here, we could be two days out from this. We don't know. But Jeff, can you speak to the significance of who we know is testifying that Bonnie Willis is bringing before this grand jury? The Republican former lieutenant governor who would have been the, overseeing the Senate at the time, right, in all of this, the state Senate, Jeff Duncan, and then this independent journalist. Exactly. So people who are involved, who are, are in the know and, and can shed more light on, on this, this, this whole process. And I think it ties directly to giving, giving some concrete examples of what we've all been watching and hearing about for the last two years. Michelle, on the special counsel for uh, overseeing now Hunter Biden's case. Poppy was getting at this with her interview. We talked about this uh, earlier in the show. Why didn't this happen earlier? You know, do we have any insights? Do we have any reporting? Do we understand why this was something that the Justice Department decided to do now and what tangible impact will it have uh, on the president? And that's the question because for so long, the Attorney General Merrick Garland was saying that, that Mr. Weiss had this authority of a special counsel, that, that it wasn't necessary. And we had Republican politicians in Congress calling for one. And now that we have one, they're saying, well, you know, 
he said it Why before. Why it? It's just such a great point because there's there's a letter that was, came from a bunch of Republican senators saying we need a special counsel on this issue. Now I think all Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, you can go so down the line. We're calling for it too. Special blowers were like they got it, and now they're really upset. Right. About the special well, counsel they're mad that, it's that they David asked Weiss. for. Oh. Right. Am right? I being too cynical? They are. Who was a Trump appointee? <laughs> who was a Trump, right. who was was a Trump appointee who was held over intentionally to try and have separation? <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. No, no. I mean, that's, that's exactly the point, that, that no matter what move they make here, Attorney General Merrick Garland, Joe Biden, whether he says anything or not, they're going to be hit with criticism. And so there's just a very narrow line for them to walk here politically about what they say, what they do, whether they touch it at all. Is, you know, I'm with you. I mean, I was shocked. I thought that Republicans who've been calling for more investigation, more transparency, would be delighted but, but by is, this news. But is their criticism fair that it, the, the criticism is that it's David Weiss and he's the one who, you know, came, dealt with DOJ on this plea deal? Yeah, I think that, that he came to a plea do, like this in the beginning, which they thought was a sweet, sweetheart deal. I do think that's fair, because if the question is, if this is the prosecutor who had signed off on a deal where this whole case was going to go away for two misdemeanors and a, disp- and a dismissal of a gun charge, I think it's fair to argue is this the right person to now expand this investigation and take it everywhere it needs to go? And by the way, little nuance here, the special counsel regulations actually say specifically the special counsel is supposed to come from outside of government. Can't be somebody who's employed by the government. Now, Bill Barr broke that when he appointed John Durham a few years ago. He found this sort of, well, I'm the attorney general, so I can do what I want. But that's been violated again. And I think maybe it goes to this exact reason you're saying, Poppy, the point of special counsel is you don't just take someone who's already been been doing this, a U.S. attorney, and fresh slap eyes. a new title. Fresh eyes. Fresh eyes, exactly. But it doesn't change the credentials that he had going in, oh, which sure. is the fact that he was appointed by the former president. And that's a, an important thing, I think, for the political calculation. This is not somebody who President Biden appointed, that a Democrat appointed. It was appointed by a Republican. And, and, and I, with the Democratic support, I don't think the question is, at this point is so much about David Weiss's motivations. It's just the competency mm-hmm. of this investigation. I thought you were going to ask. I'm no, you're not going to ask. They've wrapped us, and I don't want to wrap us. Forum tells me to go to commercial. I go to commercial. Ah, uh, fine. Thank you guys. <laughs> Michelle Price, Jeff Mason, Allie. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Coming up, we have a new reporting out of Lahaina, where our very own Bill Weir is on the ground, showing us how people there are coping and helping each other in the wake of these deadly wildfires. But this right here is a crime scene, and so. What people don't understand is the government has to do due diligence before they start moving in. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, the historic deadly wildfires in Hawaii are now being blamed for 96 deaths and the search is ongoing. The power company there is now facing a lawsuit for not cutting electricity when forecasters warned about powerful wind gusts. The suit alleges power lines blown over by the high winds made the situation even worse. Hawaii's governor is also giving just chilling new details about what happened. That fire traveled one mile every minute, resulting in this tragedy. With those kind of winds and a thousand degree temperatures, ultimately all the pictures that you will see will be easy to understand because that level of destruction in a fire hurricane, something new to us in this age of global warming, was the ultimate reason that so many people perished. CNN's chief climate correspondent Bill Weir is on the ground and has learned more about the recovery efforts underway in Lahaina. 
Poppy, uh, Phil, aloha from the, the north side of Lahaina, just one of the several thousand structures that were completely burned and gutted by the firestorm uh, last week here. This is the line that the fire department uh, on this part of uh, Lahaina held. They decided we're going to keep it here, this particular neighborhood. Most of it survived as a result. But let me show you the contrast right here. Uh, this is the home of Archie Kalepa. He is uh, a legendary surfer, lifeguard, a waterman hall of famer uh, on Maui, a ninth generation uh, Hawaiian family from the Lahaina area. And you can see what the spirit of Ohana or family in the islands means as everybody on Maui and from around the islands began flooding donations here. Uh, so they've set up a command post, improvised uh, first responders here, all volunteers, all people from the community, and they've created several of these pods around the burned area of the fire zone. You can see all the diapers and critical supplies, the water and food, uh, and people just coming in here, and it's sort of a self-organizing system. Archie has great leadership uh, experience as as a lifeguard extraordinaire, and it's all coming to play right now. People trust him. He does say that the, the, the state and federal response is getting a bad rap. Let me ask you about the immediate response right now. There's yep. a perception as we've been outside of the perimeter that there's no federal or real official state response and most of the, the, the work in the front lines is being done by people like you, mm -hmm. grassroots just mm -hmm. improvised first responders, yep. is that fair? What, what's really happening? What I, do you need? And, and I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair because be, this is a crime scene. This right here is a crime scene. And so what people don't understand is the government has to do due diligence before they start moving in. Mm -hmm. So they're at 30,000 feet. They're looking, evaluating, about how they need to come in to begin to facilitate this operation. At the same time, they have to figure out how to take care of this operation. And so, you know, that is not easy. So it's a, a humanitarian response in the uh, middle of an, a working crime scene. Exactly. The truth of the matter is, when you look at the overall dev devastation, we are not going to be ready to allow people to see what we're living through in six months. We're hearing from a lot of people outside of the sort of quarantine zone right now, the fire zone. They're frustrated because they can't get back in to see what happened to their homes or belongings. They're afraid that people up here aren't getting the help they need, that there's too much red tape in the shelters down in the center of Maui there. But those folks here say it, right now it's a, man, a matter of managing the outpouring of aid. They don't want a lot of this to turn into trash. So they're trying to manage it as it's coming in. FEMA is now starting to bring in shipments. We understand. Uh, so right now the message from here is they have enough plenty of tangible supplies. They would love to get a dust shield to protect this community from all that toxic dust that's uh, blowing up the hillside from down below. Containers to store a lot of this stuff and keep it uh, to when they need it, maybe months from now. 
and they're really begging for sustainable compassion and grief. They're afraid that our attention here will run out and, and shift elsewhere, maybe another tragedy on our overheated planet as a result of fossil fuels. They dream, they're already starting to talk about rebuilding this place in a sustainable way uh, that adheres to sort of traditional Hawaiian values and a balance with nature uh, as well. So they're trying to get through this in real time. It's so striking. But like I always say, you guys have heard me say it a million times, Mr. Rogers taught us to look for the helpers uh, when things get scary. There's no shortage of that uh, in Maui right now. Uh, but it is key that people do this right and, and pay attention for the long term uh, because there is so much here worth salvaging. It's paradise and it can be again. Uh, much more tonight coming up. I'll send it back to you guys in the studio. Thanks to Bill Weir for that. The head of FEMA, FEMA Administrator Deanne, Deanne Criswell, getting a first-hand look at the devastation in Hawaii. She says only 3% of Lahaina that was destroyed by fire has even been searched. They have gridded out the area. They use the dogs and they have the teams that go in there, but it's hot. The ground still has hot spots. The dogs can only work so long before they need a break. And so the 3% covers 3% of the grids that they have mapped out, and now they will just methodically continue to go through that. But I think one of the challenging things is many of the areas that they're in searching, um, there's structures that are partially standing. And so the engineers are embedded with them to evaluate the stability of that structure. Now, one team on the ground in Maui helping displaced residents is Ground Force by Cajun Navy. Their founder and CEO, Rob Gooday joins us now. Uh, Rob, I appreciate your time. I, I want to start with what Bill was getting at there in the sense of there is a, 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 a huge influx of aid, people that want to help, or at least the, the process of that getting in. What are you seeing on the ground in terms of what is most needed at this moment? Uh, and how do you streamline that process? You know, I'll say what I think is most needed is patience. Um, I agree um, with your previous guest, uh, you know, down in the burn zone, um, you know, there's, it's a crime zone. It's a crime scene. You know, people are, um, people pass away and there's, you know, they need to be very respectful of, you know, those families that lost loved ones and possessions and let the, let the authorities do their job. So I, I would say patience is most needed. Um, there's plenty of supplies here. Uh, I think the governor sent out a request to slow it down send cash and let us let the let the authorities um, send cash to the to the authorities and let them buy the things that are needed. Our colleague Bill Weir, who you just heard from reporting on the ground there, talked about the hope of residents if people don't turn their eyes, right? When the, when the news cameras largely leave, there's going to be a lot of need for a long time. And you're working to that effect to set up what is known as a safe camp. Is that right there in Lahaina for nonprofits to work out of? Yes, ma'am. We're working on a safe, what we call safe camp, so that we can embed into the community with nonprofit volunteers to provide, I call it a countless range of services to those in need. Not only the victims, but all the volunteers who are going down there and helping and the workers um, that will be cleaning up the debris. And, you know, hope is really the most important thing that we need and to be sensitive to those who have lost everything and have to rebuild their lives, many of them elderly that, you know, have to find the energy and the passion from our community to um, find a way to rebuild their lives. It's, it's a difficult journey for so many, many people. 
Rob, have you been in touch with kind of the search and rescue operations? Do you have a sense of what they're seeing given, you know, we heard from the FEMA administrator, there's still so much that needs to be uh, investigated, surveyed, just searched at this point. You know, our, our mission isn't search and rescue. And uh, we've been very respectful of the authorities. You know, what we're saying, you know, don't go to the burn zone unless you're, you know, a resident. And I haven't been there. We're not we're not here to sightsee. Um, we're here to provide long term uh, relief. And it's important that I think the world understands that this is a this isn't, you know, rush, rush, rush. This is a marathon. It's going to be a long journey. And we have to embed and, and take care of those in need. And the world really, I think, needs to understand that um, the first responders and the, the individuals doing searches are still looking for bodies. That's a really horrific thing. It's it's not that they're incompetent. I think it's just an enormous task. And this is the worst fire in over a hundred years for the UP, uh, for uh, for human uh, human loss. And it's a it's a major tragedy. It doesn't need to end when the media cycle ends. It needs to yeah. continue. The crisis isn't the fire. The crisis is the human impact to the people who lost their lives. Yeah, it's an important point to remember. Rob Goodey, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And for more information about how you can help Hawaii wildfire victims, go to CNN.com slash impact or text Hawaii to 707070 to donate. We'll keep you posted on that. Meantime, just stunning new video. It shows two people eject from a vintage fighter jet during the Thunder over Michigan air show. You can see their parachutes open as they were expelled from the MiG-23 on Sunday afternoon. The jet later crashed in the parking lot of an apartment complex in Wayne County. Officials say two people who ejected landed in a lake. They didn't suffer any significant injuries, thank goodness. No one on the ground was hurt either. No word on what triggered that ejection. The FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board are investigating. And some good news this morning. Four male divers who went missing south of Cape Fear, North Carolina yesterday have been found and rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard and Navy crews. Uh, they were searching, crews were searching throughout the night to find the divers after they failed to resurface around noon. A Coast Guard official told local outlets that multiple helicopters and patrol boats were involved in the mission and that no injuries have been reported. They've already pleaded guilty to federal charges to, related to torturing two black men. We reported this to you a few weeks ago. Now six Former law enforcement officers in Mississippi will be back in court today on state charges. And a smash and grab robbery caught on tape. Investigators say this, quote, mob of criminals stole up to $100,000 worth of merchandise from a Los Angeles mall and got away. Are police any closer to find them? We'll check in next. this morning, six former Mississippi law enforcement officers who've already pleaded guilty to brutalizing and torturing two black men. They're due back in court, this time on state charges. Prosecutors say the suspects were all white. Nicknamed themselves the Goon Squad. They're accused of using excessive force and then covering up their crimes. Our Ryan Young joins us now from Atlanta. Ryan, you were reporting on this a few weeks ago with us. Now they're back in court. Talk to us about the significance of this, what they're facing on the state level. Well, it's unbelievable, Poppy, when you think about this on the side that the sheriff says he didn't know any of this was going on. You had members of law enforcement calling themselves the Goon Squad. And for folks who are not familiar with the details of this story, I will warn you, some of it is graphic. They decided to show up to these men's home. They went inside. And then once they went inside, they went through a series of just torturistic um, 
physical abuse of these men. They called them the N-word. They shocked them with the taser. They poured oil on them. They threw eggs at them. And then at one point, they even tried to sexually assault one of the men. And if that wasn't enough, at one point, they pulled a bullet out of a gun. They stuck it in a man's mouth and they pulled the trigger. And when it didn't go off the first time, they racked it and they pulled the trigger again, lacerating a tongue of one of the victims. And as you can imagine, this happened back in January. These men were coming forward basically saying, hey, something was done to us. No one believed them for quite some time. In fact, take a listen to the spokesman for the two victims in this case. Sheriff Bailey, I know you was, your voice was cracking last week, buddy, and he was sitting there and crying. He say he didn't know nothing about it. And I, I, did, I, did, I didn't know nothing about it. I'd be a fool to think that. It's a squad. So we come to disassemble, dismantle, and terminate the goon squad. And Poppy, as you could imagine, people are angry in this community and they feel like it hasn't gone far enough. What members of the community are calling for is an investigation into the entire sheriff's department. The sheriff has not stepped down. Those state charges are gonna happen later today. They're gonna plead guilty to that. The federal charges have already gone through, but there's so many questions here. How could six members of a deputy force go missing for two hours with no body camera yeah. footage and not have to say anything? And this took several months for them to frequently fi find out what they were up to. They even planned it to the point where they knew where the cameras at the house were before going in. Mm -hmm. So many questions about this. And guess what, Poppy? There are other people out there in the community who were saying they had interactions with this goon squad as well. So we're not done digging just yet. Mm -hmm. We've been asking the sheriff for an interview for several weeks now that has not happened. We're hoping to get him on camera at some point to tell us what happens next with this entire department. Brian Young, keep us posted as you do. Thanks for the reporting. Well, a smash and grab robbery caught on tape at a Los Angeles mall. You're gonna wanna look at this. Police say a mob of criminals wearing head to toe black ran into a mall Saturday, overwhelmed staff, and stole between 60 and $100,000 worth of merchandise. CNN's Josh Campbell joins us live from Los Angeles. Josh, what are police saying at this point? Do they have any leads at all? None that we know of at this hour, Phil. And these cases are so difficult because these so-called criminal flash mobs strike without warning. They're gone uh, oftentimes within a matter of a minute or so. These individuals were wearing masks, some of them driving away in vehicles with paper license plates. So a lot of work for police to do there on the investigative side. Just to set the scene for our viewers, I mean, imagine you're out and about like so many of us are on a weekend at a shopping center uh, and you come face to face with a mob of criminals that are smashing and grabbing their way through a store. It's exactly what happened here Saturday afternoon in Los Angeles at Topanga Mall. You had shoppers that were just going about their business. You had store employees who were doing their work. And then this happened. Watch. Now, Phil, as you mentioned, up to $100,000 worth of goods were stolen, according to police. You can see one looks like an employee there, just exasperated, nothing that he can do. A truly terrifying situation. The Los Angeles Police Department issued a statement. I'll read part of that. They said that to criminals, this is just property taken. To those who live in the area and patronize it to Pango Mall, it is a loss of feeling safe. The LAPD will exhaust all efforts to bring those responsible into custody and seek criminal 
prosecution. Now, it's worth pointing out, Phil, that a very similar incident happened just days ago in nearby Glendale, California. I believe we have some of that video to show you. You had a very similar similar criminal uh, mob of people uh, descend on a shopping center. They got away with upwards of $300,000 worth of goods, according to authorities. And that investigation still very much underway. For law enforcement, they're hoping that members of the public, people who might know these groups, will come forward. There is a reward of $50,000 that's currently being offered. But a lot of the times, uh, because these groups are, you know, closed off and they're obviously hiding their faces, it's up to police to try to find the goods on the back end once they actually make their way onto the black market, uh, these illicit uh, trading platforms. And so uh, that very difficult to crack. But obviously for members of the community are very unsettling. For those who were there, certainly terrifying. Of course. Like I was saying to Phil, can you imagine you're in there shopping with yeah. your family and that happens? Josh, thank you. You bet. So imagine looking through your telescope and what do you see? A question mark. Look at that. That is what scientists saw in some new images taken from the Webb telescope. What this cosmic question mark could mean ahead. And former President Trump's team in Iowa trying to drown out his rivals. One in particular, Governor Ron DeSantis, who had multiple run-ins with Trump supporters as well as protesters from the left. We're in Iowa. And in Iowa, we're Iowa nice. So let's give everybody the opportunity to hear our candidates. All right, this just in, it is Monday morning and former President Trump is once again going after the judge overseeing a case brought against him over for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. He is already testing Judge Tanya Chutkin's three-day-old warning against making, quote, inflammatory statements on social media about any individuals involved in this case. So on Truth Social, Trump posted, calling her highly partisan, and said she, quote, obviously wants him behind bars. He also called her, quote, very biased and unfair. Trump has repeatedly called for her immediate re recusal from the case. He's also asked for a venue change out of Washington, D.C. It's not clear whether he will face any repercussions from these latest posts. What? I, I, I just—I like how you frame that. It it's is Monday, Monday morning. and Are it's a you day that ends in Y, and we took two days off, and now we're going. By the way, Tony Kuchukin was confirmed by the Senate in 2014, 95 to right? zero. Yeah. Double-checking that. Okay. Well, Donald Trump may have left Iowa, but he's making sure that he stays the main focus at the fair this week. Thirty staffers have been working the Iowa State Fair since dawn. Fourteen hour, uh, fourteen hours a day, handing out beer koozies, yard signs, even pamphlets taking aim at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's according to a new Semaphore report. DeSantis getting the brunt of the attacks this weekend from both left and right. A group of what appeared to be liberal protesters ringing cowbells, blowing whistles as he spoke to voters on Saturday. But Trump supporters also heckled the GOP presidential candidate yelling, we love Trump as the governor flipped burgers. And at one point, a plane pulling a banner that read, Be Likeable Ron, even flew over the crowds of people. I think our Jeff Zeleny reported some of that was from liberal groups. Yeah. Right, yeah. Republican hopefuls are flocking to this fair. It has become a very important political tradition ahead of the state's first in the nation caucuses. Trump overshadowed all of them, though, when he showed up Saturday with a handful of lawmakers backing him from Governor DeSantis's own state. Joining us now, politics reporter from Semaphore, Shelby Talcott. Shelby, it's great to have you. Uh, Phil mentioned part of the reporting that, that was yours. I mean, no one's surprised that Trump is overshadowing all of this. What about the fact that he's going directly? I mean, Ron DeSantis is just like taking it from left, right and center and Trump. 
Yeah, well, I will say uh, Ron DeSantis views that as a badge of honor, uh, particularly these liberal protesters that showed up not just at the state fair, but the day before when he was at an event nearby. And so he, uh, you know, I think he's taking it as what it is. And he views this as an example of, hey, well, this is I am clearly the front runner against Donald Trump, and this is why Donald Trump is going after me. And then you see the liberal protesters going after me. So his argument, or his way to spin all of this, is this is actually a good thing. It shows that people are afraid of me. But it's also tough, right? Because I, when I was at the state fair and these protesters were ringing their cowbells, all the attention moved to the protesters. And so it does kind of distract from the message that Ron DeSantis is trying to get out there. So Shelby, I, I kind of vacillated back and forth between two different thoughts as I read uh, your reporting, which is great reporting. One is that this Trump campaign, this iteration of the Trump campaign is so different from you know, the 2016 version that I covered, or to some degree 2020, obviously, in the middle of COVID. They have an organization. They have an operation that can get out and do what they're doing on the ground there. But I also wonder if that underscores what you hear from Team DeSantis and other folks like yourself who are talking to voters in Iowa that see softness in Trump's uh, numbers in that state and potential vulnerability. Yeah, it's there's both. It's it's a really interesting primary race so far. You're right. This uh, presidential run by Donald Trump, in terms of who he has around him, is probably the most experienced out of the campaigns he's run. And so you do see them doing these things on the ground and not taking his lead in Iowa up to chance. But at the same time, we're, we've been talking to voters all weekend, and there's this, we're seeing what campaigns are arguing, which is there is significant interest in a non-Trump alternative. So how do you square that with the fact that when Donald Trump does show up at the state fair, he still draws the biggest crowds? He's able to successfully drown out all of his opponents. It's, this, um, it, it's probably the most difficult thing that his opponents are running up against. Does it feel different, your point that there is significant interest in someone else? Does it feel different this time? I, I think it does. And I, and I say that because as I have been around the state fair this week and as I have been listening to some of these other candidates, and they're out on the ground all day long. So Donald mm -hmm. Trump came in, he made his massive splash, but he left. And granted, the, the way that they are trying to keep the focus on him is by having this massive operation on the ground, but the candidates themselves are on the ground. And so it is making a difference. We're hearing from voters, and the biggest thing we're hearing from voters, and it's not just at the state fair, but when I travel across the country, is that they're tired of the drama that comes with Trump. Shelby Talcott, thank you. Enjoy Des Moines. So there is a lot about deep space that I don't know. Phil knows it all, but I don't know You're all You're the pro-space person. You're <laughs> I very pro-space. I do like space stories. Now the universe may be telling us the fact more bluntly than ever. NASA's Webb Telescope has spotted a literal, that is a cosmic question mark, deep in the galaxy. No, really, take a look at the picture. The glowing object in the shape of a question mark was captured last month. Scientists are not sure about its origin, but think it could be what happens when two galaxies collide? They even say the merging of galaxies into a question mark-like shape has happened before, but one expert physicist said there is no way to know for sure without more research, even comparing the discovery to someone who finds a chicken tender that looks like George Washington. Can we pull that back up on the screen? Does it look like a question mark? Yes, you? yes, look, do you see it? 
Also, for the record, chicken oh, tenders yes. that look like George Washington are awesome. What's that from, the chicken tender thing? You know how people will, like, find fast food and no. say, this looks like Mother Teresa. No. Or this looks... That's a thing. You know what else Anyone is a thing? Sweat. The best story of this entire weekend, <laughs> which I know you did not see because you were out running and doing things with your family. Biking with my kids. I know. That's what I'm saying. That's you weren't watching story. Jessica Pagula, who's trying to upset the world's number one tennis player. Oh, at I the know Canadian this Open. story. Oh, yeah, all right. Keep going. And she was rudely interrupted <laughs> by this. Joe just came on mid-rally. We're going to get into the epic run <laughs> and that bizarre moment coming up next. Are we in Texas, Chanda? All right, that's a live look at the Fulton County Courthouse in Georgia, where the buses that transport jurors, Fulton County jurors, that could hear evidence in the election subversion case. They've just arrived. Obviously, this could be a very pivotal week for that. We will keep you posted. Phil. Well, Poppy, tennis is a game of focus. That's why stadium officials are constantly asking the crowd to stay silent while a match is in progress. But even the chair umpire couldn't prepare for what happened when two of the top women in tennis faced off at the Canadian Open semifinals. Oh, wow. Cotton Eye Joe just came on mid-rally. Yes, that was Cotton Eye Joe mid-rally. It interrupted the point. And if you're confused how and why that happened, so was, well, everyone else, especially Jessica Pagula, who's on the verge of closing out a second-set tie-break to beat Iga Swiatek. After that interruption, Pagula hit a cold streak and lost the set. She did turn it around in the third to upset the world number one. Pagula went on to win the title yesterday, steamrolling Ludmilla Samsonova in straight sets in a match that lasted only 49 minutes. And after the match, the sound guy couldn't help but get one more jab in. I just couldn't believe it was actually happening. I was like, where are we right now? Why, of all songs, I come to learn that I lost a lot of points consecutively after Cotton Eye Joe came on. So I'm glad I got over the Cotton Eye Joe jinx or whatever you want to call it and was able to overcome that. Um, so today, yeah, it was just funny after I won because uh, it was almost my downfall yesterday, but not, not anymore. Obviously great to see her laugh, laugh it off. Pagula is the first American woman to win the tournament since Serena Williams in 2013. What I was most impressed by? What? The color guy immediately IDing Cotton Eye Joe during the <laughs> broadcast. That is a talent and he, the certainty with I which he said it. I would fail at that. You don't know. You wouldn't know Cotton Eye Joe. See? Did you? I would, yeah, you that know. is I one I would know. That's the one okay. you would immediately know. Wait, we need to save time for this because today is a really great day for the CNN family for this show. For me, we get to officially welcome Phil Mattingly as co-anchor of CNN this morning. You are a great journalist, all sorts of awards. You're an even better person. You care so much about our team, which matters so much to us. And you have an awesome wife, Chelsea, and four kids all standing behind you. And we are thrilled to welcome you. Who I owe absolutely everything That's to. That's true. Uh, but also a huge thanks to you, a huge yes. thanks to the team putting up with me for the last three months. I do want to note, by the way. What? My coffee is now down there, um, tucked behind no three different cabinets because the first couple of days when we did this and I spilled coffee absolutely everywhere and thought to myself, Poppy is definitely going to want me to hang out for a longer <laughs> uh, period of time. Um, I'm thrilled. I it's can't what thank made you guys you, enough. It's what made me um, want to have you hang out. Let's go do important, yes. good 
nuanced reporting wow. with depth work for the months and years ahead. And bring people a few laughs along the way. We oh, yeah, promise we're you fun. that. Sorry, we're going to have some fun. But now to the serious stuff before we go, take a look. Uh, again, we were just talking about those buses, Phil, that were pulling up in uh, Georgia, the Fulton County Grand Jury. Significant day. No, there's no question about it. Significant day. Our reporters have been doing great work on this over the course of, as Sarah Murray pointed out earlier, years now coming to a conclusion, potentially, in the days ahead. Yeah. CNN News Central starts after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.